Okay, so let's continue. We are up to now. We are now beginning the next section of the prayers, right? So we're up to page 85, and we're going to be beginning the section known as the blessings of the Shema, okay? Now, the blessings of the Shema, as we will see today in the sources, are bracketing the bookend, the actual Shema itself. So Shema is, as we're, we're going to get to it, we're not going to do it today, but Shema is obviously one of the primary things. It is a mitzvah de araita. It is a Torah mitzvah, an Torah obligation to say it every day. And it is an incredibly powerful anthem about our belief system encapsulated in, in this, you know, the first statement and then everything about it. All of those, all of those paragraphs are incredibly powerful statements. So the sages wanted us to sort of bookend it with other concepts before and after that this anthem, this uh, declaration of our belief in God. We'll get into that. Before we do that, though, there's one thing that happens before that, which is the process of the Baruch Hu prayer. Okay. So if you look on page 85, we start with Baruch Hu et Adonai Hamavorach, right? And we are familiar with this prayer also from Aliyot, right? When someone goes up to the Torah, this is also what they begin with. They say this phrase. This phrase is a invitation to a congregation to come bless God together, right? So what one would say is, you say, when you're saying, Baruch Hu es Hashem HaMavorach, you're saying, blessed Hashem, who is the blessed one. So according to all, when you say the Baruch Hu, that is in the um, imperative, I guess. That is in a, a command form to tell people, we want to all join together and bless God. So it's not saying that God is blessed. It is inviting others to bless God together. We then say, Baruch Hashem HaMavorach Le'olam Va'et. So the congregation says it, and then the chazan, then the prayer leader says it. They say this idea of, indeed, blessed is God. So we start off with bless God, then we bless God. And this is the beginning of the next stage in our prayer service. Now, the I, I want to show you, where's my source sheet? One second. Let me show my screen, actually. Okay. So what we have is, I'm going to show you in a minute, the, um, the different parts of the temple. Because if you guys remember, from the beginning of this series, we have discussed how there's different parts in the temple. And the way that the sages set up the prayer service is that it should be reminiscent of the different stages of getting closer and closer, progressing closer and closer to holiness, to Kedusha. And the closer we get to that holiness, we are raising ourselves up and raising ourselves up until we are the equivalent of the Kohen Gadal, of the high priest on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, joining in a special place where only he and God can be. No angels are allowed in at that time, which is the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is going to be, we know what the end is before we start. The Holy of Holies is going to be when we are actually praying the Shemona Esrei, right? that individual prayer that we pray to God quietly. But up until then, we've been building up and we describe different places of it. So we're going to see where this next stage is supposed to represent. But before that, let's look at source number one on the source sheet. And source number one is going to be the Talmud and the Talmud discussing the obligation of saying these special blessings before and after the Shema. Let me just stick this into the chat as well. Okay. 
So this is a Mishnah that is quoted in the Talmud in Brachot, which is the first uh, tractate in the Babylonian Talmud. From the laws of the recitation of Shema itself, the Mishnah proceeds to discuss the blessings recited in conjunction with Shema. Here the order is established. In the morning when reciting Shema, one recites two blessings beforehand. The first on the radiant lights, and the second, the blessing on the love of Torah. And one thereafter, which begins with true and firm, MS Biatsiv. So in the morning, we bookend Shema with three blessings total, two right before and one right after. And in the evening, one recites two blessings beforehand on the radiant lights and on the love of God, and two thereafter, the blessing of redemption, true and faithful, and the blessing help us lie down. With regard to the blessing, uh, you know, that's one second. Let's skip that part for now. So, okay. So now the Gemara is going to explain what are these blessings before and after the Shema. The Gemara begins by determining the formula of the two blessings preceding the morning Shema. The Gemara asks, what blessing does one recite? Rabbi Yaakov said in the name of Rabbi Hoshia. The blessing focuses on the verse, who forms light and creates darkness, who makes peace and creates evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay. So what the Gemara is pointing out is that the, the first blessing is focused on a verse. It is built off of a verse in Isaiah. We'll look at that verse in Isaiah shortly. But before we do that, what we've now discussed is that there's three different blessings that are going to be said around the Shema. There are first one. Yeah, go ahead, David. I, I muted you. Creates evil. Yeah, that's that's a it's a good question. It's a very good question. The Gemara is going to get into that and exactly what this means and why this is a little bit of a negative connotation. And although Isaiah does say this, Isaiah as a prophet is speaking in the name of God and saying that this is what God creates evil. Yes, yes. Um, but that's not the formula that we actually say because yeah. that would have negative of a connotation. So instead we, we say something else that will encompass it as well. Okay. okay. Um, now, before we get there, though, I want to show you guys something really cool. I was looking for some, last night I stayed up late looking for some good diagrams of the of the temple. So I could show you guys what, what we're talking about over here. So I got a couple of pictures that I think will be helpful. Um, so let's look right here. Um, this is the overall diagram of the Beit HaMikdash, okay? This is the Ezrat Nashim. This is the woman's section. Remember, we discussed how the different aspects of the prayer service are supposed to be reflective of different elements as you get closer and closer. And we discussed the Suke de Zimra are going to be in here. And then you have the steps. These are the 15 um, Psalms, right? We went through different, no, sorry, the 15 blessings that we make in the morning and so on and so forth. Actually, at this point in prayer, we are now about to enter past the Ulam. Ulam means the antechamber, which is right over here. The Ulam was this Tremendous. You know what? Let me go to a different a different website right now to show you this in a little bit better detail. Okay. So this is the overall picture. This is what we call the Heichal. The Heichal is the, what we also refer to sometimes as the Kodesh, the holy. And then this would be the Holy of Holies right here. Okay. The Holy of Holies, as we know, this is a, a um, an illustration of the Aron Kodosh, right? Of the of the uh, of the of the Ark that had the tablets in it, right? In the second temple period, this Kodesh Hakadoshim actually had nothing in it because the ark had been hidden by King Josiah when, uh, when, the, when the Babylonians were surrounding Jerusalem. Actually, not Babylonians, even before that. The Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem when he hid the ark because he didn't want it to fall into the enemy hands. So the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, had nothing within it at all. 
And the only thing that would happen in there was the Kohen Gadol would come in and do the incense service on Yom Kippur inside the Kodesh HaKadosh. Okay? This is the Heichal. It's the second holiest. The Heichal had within it three utensils. It had the table, uh, the, the table right here. The table is what they would put the showbread on. It had the menorah, right, which they lit, you know, the oil menorah that they lit. And then it had this special altar for the sake of the incense. It was a golden altar made for the sake of the incense. Those are the three utensils over here, okay? We'll discuss that in a little bit greater detail. Before I, first, I just want to show you the pictures a little bit better, okay? This is to get a little bit more of a sense of what we're looking at over here. This is the interior of the antechamber, the ulam, right? The ulam that I was just showing you right here, this area, okay? This is it on the inside. It was a huge, tremendous thing. It was only 11 cubits long, but it was 60 cubits wide. So 120 feet wide, 22 feet long. So it's this huge, like out of proportion, right? Very, very wide. It is also very, very tall. The walls are, everything is gold. Everything is gold, right? It's, it's, a, um, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And there was you know, different aspects to it. After they go past that section, what they would do is they go like this. Um, okay, this is inside the holy, okay? The heichal that we discussed earlier. So over here we have the table. This is the table for the showbread. Over here we have the menorot. In the second temple period, they had more than one menorah. Even once King Solomon came, they built more than one menorah. The Torah only has one, King Solomon adds more. Over here is the incense altar. Okay. Rip Schwab wants to say a beautiful idea. As we are progressing closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, when it's just going to be us and God, nothing else, no interruptions, no distractions. Right before that, we're going to enter into the Heichal, into the Kodesh, the Holy. The menorah is representative of the oral Torah. That is the tradition teaches us in the Talmud. The Shulchan is representative of how God interacts with the material world how God manifests himself in this world, right? The greatest manifestation of God in this world in truth, right, is actually the Torah, right? Because the Torah is how we get to actually communicate with God. We, we hear from God through the Torah. That, in, in a sense, is the greatest manifestation of God, right? So, the, like I said, the menorah is the oral Torah, the shulchan, the table, is the conduit for material success. And the mizbeach has a have right here, the golden altar that they put the incense on is, in general, the incense is way in which we accept upon ourselves Kabbalat ol malchut shamayim, which means the acceptance of the yoke of heaven upon ourselves. Now, when you think about it, when you think about the words accepting the yoke of heaven, what does that bring to mind? It brings to mind Shema. Because when you say the Shema, that is exactly what you do. You accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven. So if we think about it, the Shema is represented or representative of the altar, right? The blessing right before the Shema is all about thanking God for having given us the Torah. What is that representative of? The menorah, which is supposed to be representative of the Torah. The blessing before that is going to be discussing how God manifests himself materially in this world, which is reflective of the Shulchan Aruch. So if we're trying to build ourselves up and literally build a mental picture as we progress deeper in the prayer service, a mental picture of a person walking closer and closer to God, right? This is a very easy way for us to understand now what exactly is going on 
throughout the prayer service and specifically when it comes to the blessings of the Shema and why it is that the sages wanted us to focus in the first blessing on the manifestation of God because it's supposed to bring to mind inside the holy. Why are we supposed to focus in the second blessing on the Torah? It's supposed to bring to mind the menorah inside of the holy. Okay? So that is what we're supposed to be doing in general. But what we're going to see is that when we start the, these blessings, we, if you look in your page, it actually seems like there's more than one blessing going on over here on page 85. We begin with, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Yotzer Ar Uvorech Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who forms light and creates darkness. Ose Shalom, he makes peace. Uvore et hakol, and creates everything. Okay. Now, this is not the end of the blessing. You know, you have a, that five over there, and it seems like it's the end of the line. It's not the end of the blessing. This is actually all together with the next blessing, right? So this next blessing is not another blessing. Hamayir la'aretz. That is completely connected to the first phrase. Okay? So first we begin with, Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who forms light and creates darkness, makes peace and creates all. Now we just saw that the Talmud explains and the Talmud expresses that what's happening is th this blessing begins with a reference to with a reference to this verse in Isaiah, right? And we need to discuss this verse in Isaiah, and then we're going to go on with this blessing. So let's see what the Gemara says. The Gemara asks the question that, uh, that David was a little bit troubled by, and but the Gemara is asking a more, more pointed. Not only are we asking about the, what exactly that means, but we're also asking why do we change the formula, right? If we're really quoting the verse in Isaiah, the verse in Isaiah says, who creates evil. With regard to this formula of the blessing, the Gemara asks, let him say the following formula instead, who forms light and creates brightness so as not to mention darkness, which has negative connotations. The Gemara answers, we say the blessing as the verse is written in the Bible and do not alter the formula that appears in the verse. The Gemara is saying, oh, well, the verse is written in the Bible. Okay, great. That's why we say who forms, who forms light and creates darkness. No, that's not what it says in the Bible. It actually says it creates evil, right? But if so, what about the continuation of the verse? Who makes peace and creates evil? Do we say this blessing as is written in the Bible? Rather, it is written evil, and we euphemistically recite the blessing, all things, to avoid mention of evil. Here, too, let us euphemistically say brightness instead of darkness. Rather, Rava said, the reason we recite who creates darkness is in order to mention the attribute of day at night and the attribute of night during the day, and thereby unify day and night as different parts of a single entity. Okay? What are we talking about over here? What's this day and night? Why do they have to be different parts of a single entity? What's the whole goal of this blessing, right? And by saying darkness, okay, fine. So we said darkness, it's not quite as bad as saying evil, but why don't we just not say it at all? Don't say darkness at all, right? So we want to make reference to the fact that don't get confused about something. There was a predominant view that was coming into vogue at that time period, okay? And that predominant view was in a world that started off monotheism and then went to a polytheism and a almost a paganistic type of view where there's millions and millions of, not millions, but there's thousands of gods. There's lots of little forces. There's the force under this mazal, under this constellation. And there's the force of this type of animal, the force of that type of animal. There's all these different forces. 
the world is progressing away from that. You know what happened before that? Around the time of Isaiah, a little bit before that, actually, there was a fellow named Zor. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Zoroaster, I guess his name is. Right. So, and he starts this religion, so to speak, known as Zoroastrianism, which the focus of it is an idea that there is two gods, one God of light and good, and one God of darkness and evil, right? So this is actually something that was very powerful and was reigning supreme at this time, aside from, from the Jewish people. So when we talk about light and darkness, what we're really referring to, yes, light and darkness, because after all, that's part of the concept, but it's also not just the physical state of light and darkness. It is the ideas expressed by that physical state of light and darkness. When we think of light, we think of good. We think of things are clear, things are good, they're happy. When we think of darkness, we think of things not being clear, of things that are seemingly bad, right? So light is a reference to what we call midat harachamim, the, when God acts with his attribute of kindness. And darkness is a reference to when God acts with his attribute of din, of justice. We've mentioned in the past that when we are in Galut, when we are in exile, it is considered to be dark. When we are in the land of Israel as a nation, it's considered to be light when God manifests himself, when we have a presence of God in this world. And we've said in the past, midata rachamim, the idea of midata rachamim, of the attribute of kindness, of loving kindness, of compassion with which God interacts with the world, is when God manifests or projects himself into the world, that is midata rachamim. When God takes himself away from the world, restricts his presence from the world, that is midat hadin. So this concept of darkness and light is a concept that was true both as a physical state, but also as a spiritual or even a, a general psychological idea, right, of, of darkness and light. And it's still something we have today, right? There's this, this association, right? You know, people sometimes associate the reason why uh, you know, dark is uh, considered to be a, you know, a bad thing. It's all because people are racist, right? I, I don't believe that that's true. I believe it has to do with people's association with dark as being an inability to see, right? And that's why people have this association with dark. It's an inability to see. And, and on a deeper level, it's an inability to see God's presence. It's an inability to see, to see God in this world, right? Whereas light refers to when things are, are transparent, and we have a sense of God's presence in this world. I think that's why we have an intuitive, uh, you know, sort of reaction to an association of dark with evil and light with, with, uh, with good. It is not a, a racist concept at all, right? Other than some sort of correlation, but it's not a, uh, it's not a causative thing of any stretch. So this idea that this was becoming the, the predominant uh, religion, Schwab points out a fascinating historical point. He quotes, let's read that, that, uh, that verse a little bit in Isaiah 45. Parenthetically, if anybody who has not yet read Isaiah, Isaiah is a very difficult book to read. Um, it's hard to understand always what he's referring to. And sometimes it's very sad, but the poetry, you know, the, the writing is just, is just astonishingly beautiful, right? incredibly poetic. Thus said the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he has grasped. Now, Cyrus is Koresh. Koresh is going to be one of the kings in Persia who allows the Jews to 
go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Isaiah is prophesizing in the first temple period. So whose right hand he has grasped, treading down nations before him, ungirding the loins of kings, opening doors before him, and letting no gate stay shut. I will march before you and level the hills that loom up. I will shatter doors of bronze and cut down iron bars. I will give you treasures concealed in the dark and secret hordes, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel, my chosen one, I call you by name, I hail you by title, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Besides me, there is no God. I engird you, though you have not known me. So that they may know from east to west that there is none but me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form light and create darkness. I make wheel and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So this itself is a powerful rebuttal to a concept of two different gods, one for light, one for darkness, one for evil, one for good. Isaiah is quoting from God that God is saying, I am everything, right? And I create evil to some extent, right? Now to get into that, that question of theodicy, does that mean that God himself is saying he creates evil or he creates the conditions that it's possible for evil to exist in or he does not stop evil from happening? That's a question. That's a question. That's a big topic. There are multiple opinions. I don't want to get into that right now. But in terms of does it mean very literally that he actually creates evil or does it mean that that Hitler has the ability to live right, and that God doesn't have him get, uh, you know, uh, die in the Spanish flu? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Now, that's what this phrase is coming from. This phrase is, therefore, starting off as a, as I said, a rebuttal to a philosophy that was starting to reign supreme. So we have to recognize that that's the very first thing that we say when we are beginning beginning the process of saying the blessing of Shema, that we're going to start with the prayers of Shema, that we start with the blessings, right? When we do that, what we're going to start with is first rebutting, first, uh, you know, completely refuting the idea that there is two different gods. That's the very first step that we're going to be building up to our progression to Shema. Now, Rishwa points out in the story of Daniel, right, the story of Daniel, which is one of the most difficult to read, because part, a lot of it is Aramaic as well, and a ancient Aramaic. Story goes like this. We know that Daniel gets thrown into the pit with the lions. What did he do to cause him to be thrown into the pit with the lions? What specifically had he done? So what happens is like this. Daryavash, Darius, is, receives the kingdom. He's 62 years old. And he has all of these people in charge of this country. And Daniel is one of the, one of the people, one of the three ministers, right? Now, Daniel was brilliant and he was supposed to be the best, right? Ministers and satraps looked for some fault in Daniel's conduct in matters of state, but they could find neither fault nor corruption. Inasmuch as he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption must be found in him. Those men then said, we are not going to find any fault with this Daniel unless we find something against him in connection with the laws of his God. Then these ministers and satraps came thronging into the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the ministers of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, companions, and governors are in agreement that a royal ban should be issued under sanction of an oath, that whoever shall address a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, during the next 30 days shall be thrown into a lion's den. Rav Schwab says this was actually as part of a transition away from the predominant view at that time of a polytheistic, right, where multideism, right, where everybody, every single creature has a god in it, and they were transitioning away. So they said, everything is forbidden. Now, all prayers are forbidden. And this was a way to take a step back from the other religions to lay the groundwork so that they could go to this new religion. And this is happening in this time period. 
And therefore, as a response to that, the sages said, in no uncertain terms, God creates everything. There is nothing that God has not created. Okay, so let's continue on. So we, we say in the morning prayer that, uh, like we said, we've been discussing, we say that he forms light and creates darkness. He makes peace and creates all. So we said, we said it's darkness because that's a euphemism for evil, right? But then what we finish with is a Ose Shalom, he makes peace, uborek es hakal. What does Ose Shalom mean in this context? He makes peace. Well, what we're trying to say is, we're trying to give you a sense of there is bad in this world, there is good in this world, but there is a peace, there is a unity amongst everything that happens. This is the idea, we've discussed this in the past multiple times. The sages are discussing it throughout the prayer service. They are focused on this point because it is so critical to our belief system to our ability to really connect to God un even under terrible times, right? You know, many people lost their faith in God after, after World War II. We know that. Uh, I'll tell you a story. There was a fellow when I was growing up in, in the yeshiva that I went to. His name was uh, Rabbi Leibish Langer. Rabbi Leibish Langer, he was like the, when I was there, he was, he was in charge of the younger grades, like overall um, inspiration and uh and discipline it was a, a tremendous school you know like probably 2,000 kids or something with like different sections and different divisions so he says over the story about his father his father lost his family his first wife and all of the children that he had had before the war in world war one and world war ii i'm sorry and then what happened is after after the holocaust he came to america and he got remarried and he had these new children and Rabbi langer says over the story that he was, uh, he was one time with his father at a museum in New York. And a woman comes over to his father and, and sees that he has, uh, you know, tattoos on his hand from the, you know, the numbers tattooed on his arm. And she starts like screaming at him. How could you still believe, like, because he's clearly an Orthodox Jew. How could you still believe after everything that happened there when God forsook you in the Holocaust? How could you still believe? And Langer, Rabbi Langer says he never forgot what his father did. His father turns to her and says, God forsook me in the Holocaust. God was standing there right next to me holding my hand. Right? So that means to say it's not an automatic, an automatic uh, understanding. That doesn't mean Langer, Rabbi Langer, his father, did not understand why this happened. He lost his wife and whole first family. It's not like he was happy about those events, but it did not shake his belief for a second that God was still there with him no matter what happened. Right? So what we're seeing is, is like this. There is a unity here. The entire idea of a religion that posits that there's two different things, right? Why would a religion posit that? Why would a religion posit two different gods? Because they want to be able to express there's things that we could understand and be grateful for. And then there's the, the God of evil. For some reason, he does things that are evil. We don't understand it. But at least we have something that we could, we could relate to, a God of good, right? What Judaism says is, no, it's one and the same God. And that which we see as good, that which we see as evil, it's all part of the master plan. And for somebody to have the, the, uh, the azuz, the audacity, the chutzpah, to think that they can define what is good, what is bad, and, and say that this cannot be from God. Or, um, but yeah, so, but, but the rest of us would say, no, of course, that's not what happened. Of course, for whatever reason, this is what God wanted for the world. This is something that we discuss again and again and again throughout the prayer service because it is so essential and so important for religion. It is so important for Judaism and it is so important for the prayer service themselves to have this recognition while one is praying. 
So it really comes from a unity. It comes from a peace that God has created. Uvore asakal, and he has created everything. So God has actually created everything totally. Go ahead, David. So I wanted to ask, Rabbi, is there a particular book that you think um, most clearly deals with this topic of God and the Holocaust? So I think the book that my father recommends is, um, I'm trying to remember what the name is actually. Yeah, I'm going to ask him. And I know my father recommends a book. I'm, I'm going to ask my father what that book is. Um, All right. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's going to be a book that will satisfy everybody at all times. And I don't know that that's what's supposed to happen either. After Sachs died, right? You guys remember there was that video of the woman discussing, asking him a question. It was a Chabad Shlucha, right? A, a Chabad woman who, was a, who had gone out on Shlichut. And she was discussing how she was close with him from the time that she was a child. She was English, right? She was from Britain, Great Britain. And she, um, she basically said that she asked him this question and, and, uh, and he, he basically was saying that now he finally understands what it is, right? He finally has a decent answer. The answer is that the reason why God makes things happen that are bad and allows things to happen is so that we can feel, so that we can try to change. We can try to strive to change the world because if there wasn't any ability to do that, our place in this world wouldn't, wouldn't have any sort of ability to change the world because we wouldn't have any impetus to do so. I think that's the way it went, but I'm actually, in my mind right now, I'm not sure if I'm putting together two different videos that came out. Chuck, do you remember? Am I putting together two different videos? Uh, well, I remember the, it was about a one-minute video, and he's, he's got his head down as the question is being asked, and he picks it up, and he says, I have, I have the answer, and I think it's along the lines that, that you were saying. Uh, right. That uh, she she was interviewing him, right? She was interviewing him, and that was obviously a must have been a snippet of a much longer interview, right? But but he answered the question, and uh, it, there has to be something for us to do to improve the world. And if God if um, if God does God doesn't do that, then there's there's nothing for us to do. I mean, what then? Why are we even here on this earth? Right. All right, I think that's a powerful answer, but but like I said, this is a question, and, and we've discussed this in the past, this is a question which Moshe himself did not get an answer to. The Talmud tells us that this is what Moshe was asking God when he says, can I see your face? Let me see your face. And God says, no, you cannot see my face. The Talmud says Moshe was asking God, why do bad things happen to good people? To which God said, I'm not telling you. That's not an answer that you can have in this world. Right Now, now you could say it like, like Rabbi Sachs says it. That the reason is because if we had an answer, then we would no longer need to try to change anything. If I told you right now, people dying in India, this is a good thing, right? You would say I'm an evil person, first of all. You would say, how could I possibly say such a thing? And, and I don't think that, right? I, I'm not actually saying those words. My point is to say, if I actually showed you right now why this is a good thing for the world, it's a good thing for the people who are dying, it's good for them to die. Would you have any need to go try to raise money for an oxygen concentrator? No. Why would you? That's what's supposed to happen. This is what God wants. God doesn't want us to see that. God wants us to work. God wants us to strive. He wants us to try to change the world. Okay? But that, that's a, it's, it's a difficult answer. According to some, the entire concept of Kabbalah, the entire, uh, the, the theory of Kabbalah in which God has removed himself from the world, in which God constricts his presence in the world, and which God operates through the world, to the world and interacts with the world with this filter of the 10 different spheres, 
That is all an attempt to answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people. This is not a new question. It's a question that people have struggled with forever. And it's a question which we are told that the answer is not going to be so satisfactory in this world. That being said, we look now at source number six. The Gemara cites another verse from the prophecy at the end of the book of Zechariah. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. On that day shall the Lord be one and his name one. The Gemara asks, is that to say that now he is not one? This is a reference to in the world to come. said the world to come is not like this world. In this world, upon good tidings, right? You hear, as the Talmud tells us, if someone hears that their ship came back and their investment was great, right? They invested in Bitcoin at, at uh, you know, $1 and now it's $40,000, right? So when they hear that news and they go sell their Bitcoin, they make what is called a blessing. Blessed is the one who is good and does good to us. When somebody hears bad tidings, their ship sank in the sea, right? Then one recites, blessed are you who is the true judge. When someone has a relative die, blessed are you who is the true judge. In the world to come, we will always recite, blessed are you who is good and does good, which means that in the world to come, we will have an understanding of how everything that happens is good, right? So we are assured that that will happen one day, but it's not something that will happen in this world. That being said, that is the introduction to this blessing, begins by describing God as creating, yes, and the way that Isaiah says he's creating evil. But the verse, the blessing that we have on page 85 does not say creating evil, but rather says creates all, right? It reflects an idea that as we get closer and closer to Shema and we are closer in the holy of, and the holier sections of the temple, we are able to reach a higher, more elevated understanding or emotional connection to God in which we are able to state everything is for the good. There is a unity to everything. I can't understand it, but there's a unity to everything. And that belief is incredibly critical to, to moving on with life. Otherwise, we know what happens to people when, when bad things happen. They can't move on. But if, if one can believe in God and one can believe that this, is, this too shall pass, this too is for the good, it does make it easier to connect to this world. It makes it easier to be resilient, right? And that's what's kept the Jews alive throughout everything that's happened to us, right? The idea of what's happening right now, it is pretty awful to see. It's scary to see what's going on in the world with the anti-Semitism and with the actual physical act. That being said, this is still better than, you know, if any generation, any generation up until maybe 40 years ago, any generation of Jews from any time in history, like, this is what you're complaining about. Like, do you know what we dealt with? You know what I mean? So like, this is not a new existence for the Jewish people. And yet we're still here, right? We're still here. We're still battling. We're still trying to change the world. We're still doing good. And that's not going to change, right? Um, you know, we say, we say um, the, the God of Israel does not, does not lie. The God of Israel says that we're going to be here. It says that the remnant will still be around and the remnant will still be here until the end of days. So that's not going to change. No matter what the, the, the haters are trying to do, and the haters, like I said, it's not nearly as, as bad as it ever has been. It is getting scary. <laughs> I mean, you should be signing the, the Amcha things and all that other stuff. But that, that point, I think, is important to recognize that ultimately we will understand why everything happens. And even this, we will understand why it was for our own good. Okay, we're going to stop over here. And then next week, Bezra,